We just never anticipated that all these MBAs, people in business school, would just be ranting and raving that this was the person that they wanted to be. Michael Douglas famously declared, greed is good. It was the movie Wall Street, and it was meant to be satire. So the actor was shocked when his character, the amoral, asset-stripping Gordon Gecko, actually became a role model for many business students in 1980s America. How things have changed. On this episode of The Great Reset, we talk to a renowned economist who has, in the title of his latest book, declared greed is dead. People in business realize that we have a, what I describe as a problem of business legitimacy. People just now have a very negative attitude in the main towards large businesses. The financial crisis of a decade ago dealt a massive blow to the idea that unfettered markets, driven by greed, are good. Here's Wall Street director Oliver Stone. After the crash, of course, all bets were off because really it was a major heart attack. It was a triple bypass. I think they put a stent in, but I'm not sure if they've solved it. Now the COVID-19 pandemic is forcing us to ask even more questions about the way business and society work. So, is greed really dead? It's time for a turning of the intellectual tide, as indeed happened in the 1980s. I'm Robin Pomeroy, digital editor at the World Economic Forum, and this is The Great Reset, a podcast where we look at how we can rebuild a cleaner, fairer, smarter world after the pandemic. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to get it regularly, and please take a moment to rate us. From the World Economic Forum, this is The Great Reset. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. That philosopher was Gordon Gecko, the part played by Michael Douglas in the 1987 movie Wall Street, summing up the greed is good era when markets were unleashed and profit making was the be all and end all for efficient, effective companies. In a new book, Oxford University economists Paul Collier and John Kay say that era is over. Greed is Dead sets out why greed and selfishness, whether corporate or personal, will not make the world a better place. Written during lockdown, the book is extra timely as the COVID pandemic causes many companies and individuals to reassess how they work. John Kay is a fellow of St John's College, Oxford, the first dean of Oxford's Said Business School and a former director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. I asked him if the book's title had indeed been inspired by Wall Street and Gordon Gecko. That is absolutely where we got the title from. And of course, this is not saying greed is actually dead um, any more than in the 1980s. It was true that greed is good. But what we are trying to talk about is that it's time for, a, as it were, a turning of the intellectual tide, as indeed happened in the 1980s, with a shift towards what we describe as market fundamentalism and expressive identity. And the thesis of the book, essentially, is that, and this actually takes us over the whole post-war period, that we've had the rise of essentially individualism as political and economic philosophy. And that means that agency is polarised between the individual and the state. And that has implications for the way we think about government, the way we think about business, the way we think about society as a whole, and the way we think about social movements. And what we argue strongly in the book is that actually the distinguishing characteristic really of humans among other mammals is that we're extremely social. 
we work with each other, we communicate with each other, we talk to each other, we do things together. And we talk particularly about communities of work and communities of place. And what we suggest is that um, a lot of these communities have been destroyed or eroded in the last 30 years uh, to our great cost, both socially and economically. And we need to turn that round. Famously, Margaret Thatcher said, um, there's no such thing as society. You quote a policy advisor to Margaret Thatcher, who said around the time, of course, there is no such thing as a collective interest, only a coincidence of individual interests. And then you write, we profoundly disagree. Communitarian politics builds informed common purpose. So what you're saying is humans work in communities, maybe smaller communities often than giant nation states or, or even bigger entities than that. Is that kind of the, the heart of the matter? That's right. And what we call society is actually built up from a whole variety of smaller communities. And pro- quite possibly our, our largest nation states, whether we're talking about the United States or the UK, uh, may well be too big to reproduce at that level the sense of community. In a way, the coronavirus panic of the last few months has brought home the many very different ways in which different societies have reflected this in the way they've coped with this particular crisis or failed to cope. If we agree that communitarian politics, working as community with shared goals, is the way forward, is that being done in certain places or how how would society achieve it? I mean, it was being done in large part through the 1950s and 1960s. And we saw and we describe in the book how that was eroded by a variety of factors, um, failures at the macroeconomic level, political failures, and uh, the growth of alternative ideologies. And it's not simply a matter of turning the clock back, but it's a matter of returning to a society in which we have shared common purposes and in which we have competing political parties, and that's a, a very important part of how democracy functions. But it's not competing political parties that represent tribal allegiances of groups that appear to be at war with each other, which I fear is um, where the US but has particularly reached and several other European countries are reproducing some of that problem. We describe in the book how the traditional left-right axes of politics have broken down in the face of the changes we describe. Well, in some ways, probably the traditional left and right have become more left and more right. Maybe a generation ago, maybe in the Blairite years, to use the British example, people said, oh, there's no difference between the parties. One thing you could say about the Donald Trump, perhaps the Brexit era, similar things in other Western countries, there's a very clear distinction now between left and right. You've got a very clear choice, really, when you go to the ballot box. You have a clear choice, but it's not a straightforward left and right choice anymore. The US was always a more complicated story, but European political parties were really arranged on a very clear left-right axis until the 1980s, effectively. The doctrine of the left was socialism in milder or more extreme forms, depending on the time and the country. But in a sense, that defined the 
the political stance of the, the party of the right as well. The party of the right was a constellation of people who were, um, as it were, threatened by socialism or at any rate opposed to it. Traditionalist conservatives, people who valued uh, the military and the church, um, conventionally right-wing economic business people who wanted the state to keep out of their affairs. And so that was actually a coalition which had not very much in common, except they were subject to the same threat. And what really happened when communism so conspicuously failed and finally the Berlin Wall came down in 1989 was that socialism became almost disappeared as a motivating ideology and that created problems for the traditional parties of the left and problems for the traditional parties of the right which we've seen emerging since and in some places rather charismatic leaders, people like Clinton or Blair, were able to paper over these cracks for a period. Uh, but it turned out that didn't, that wasn't something that survived in the long run. Your book is something that probably has plenty in it to annoy both the left and the right. So let's start with businesses should not make profits by generating problems for society. The team of brilliant mathematicians which makes fortunes for its members by outwitting the managers of pension funds is a social parasite, not a role model. The boundary between competition to outperform and cooperation to predate is not usually difficult to draw. I would say, isn't it? difficult if you've got markets that are being traded by algorithms in split seconds without anything being produced to the detriment perhaps of someone with a long-term investment strategy is it easy to outlaw that perhaps there are benefits it brings market liquidity that will certainly have plenty of defenders it's making a lot of money for for many people it's not absolutely clear-cut but i've written an earlier book about that other people's money which i published three or four years ago which is designed to explain how we've had this explosive growth of the financial system in ways that relate less and less to the underlying needs of the real economy. And uh, algorithmic trading in financial markets um, illustrates that very well. What value are these people adding? Well, you quoted the conventional dissent, uh, defense, which will be offered if you point to that which is they're, provo they're, they're providing liquidity. But actually, the liquidity we already have in financial markets is kind of many, many, many times more liquidity than is actually needed to meet the requirements of people who are saving to buy a house to provide them with a standard of living in retirement and so on. You're listening to The Great Reset with me, Robin Pomeroy, and my guest, the economist John Kay. If you're enjoying this podcast, please rate us and also check out our sister podcast, World vs. Virus, where we've spoken to economists, business leaders, scientists, policymakers, campaigners, and just fascinating people to try to make sense of the pandemic and look at ways we can beat it. This was IMF Chief Economist Gita Gopinath. We described the 2020 crisis as the Great Lockdown. Just historical numbers, incredible. We also spoke to former UK Foreign Secretary David Miliband. This disease can't be allowed to run riot until it overwhelms an already weak health system. And this is psychologist and podcaster 
Adam Grant. Unfortunately, there are some people who are going to face post-traumatic stress. The encouraging news is over half of people report post-traumatic growth. You can hear all of those interviews and many more. Just search for World vs. Virus wherever you get your podcasts. Now back to The Great Reset, where I'm talking to Oxford University economist John Kay about his book, Greed is Dead. Towards the end of the book, you say this idea that the market is against or detrimental to society is actually a fairly modern idea that in the days of ancient Greece, the marketplace, it was the place of community coming together. And you think that's something that should and can and does actually apply in the modern world? Um, yes, I do. Uh, the properly functioning markets actually operate within a social context. Um, what we've done in the financial sector is to try very hard by rules and regulations and practice to create a world in which which is safe for anonymous traders. But actually, very little of the real trading we do in markets is anonymous. We go to shops we trust, we buy from people we know, we hire tradespeople who have a local reputation or are recommended to us by friends and so on. And one of the interesting things we've seen is the growth of intermediaries who are designed to make it easier for people who don't know each other, nevertheless, to trade with each other. So we have um, extreme examples would be Uber or Airbnb, which make it possible to go in and stay in the apartment of someone you don't know or um, hire a driver whom you don't know. But all of this is designed to make sure that trading is not really anonymous. That's what I mean, or one of the many things I mean by saying that markets operate effectively uh, by operating within a social context. And that goes back to the underlying theme of the explosion of individualism, which denies that account of markets and believes that anonymous traders and homogeneous commodities are the norm. And one extreme example of that, which we come to, has been uh, the way in which the mortgage market developed, that it was characteristically individual and personalised. Uh, you know, when I first took out a mortgage, that meant going to have an inter a rather unpleasant interview with a building society manager. Uh, we created a world in which all this was done by algorithms and in which uh, these mortgages were packaged and to securities, which were then anonymously traded. And that didn't end, end, end well, as we all know. You mentioned the uh, US Business Roundtable, very much following what has been the World Economic Forum's uh, mantra for, for decades, that shareholder value isn't the main thing for companies. It has to be stakeholder value. Do, do you think there's genuine change going on? Because I notice you also write in the book, there's a whole risk of ESG kind of blah greenwash from companies as well. So how much should we be glad that things are perhaps moving towards companies working for the greater good of society at large? Or how much should we be sceptical of it? I think your question illustrates both the positives and the negatives of all of this. That what is generating a lot of this activity is that people in business realise that we have a what I describe as a problem of business legitimacy, that people just now uh, have a very negative attitude in the main towards, la towards large businesses. It's very interesting, the results of um, 
various surveys of trust that people, uh, you get very negative results if you ask people, do you trust large businesses? But yet most people trust small businesses. And they also, interestingly, mostly trust their own employer. Uh, but this is the, the loss of legitimacy on the part of business. And quite a lot of people in business have now understood that this is an issue and a problem they have to address. I, I am worried that uh, the Business Roundtable issued this declaration, but there have been a number of attempts now to ask the companies that were signatories, so what difference is it actually going to make to your operations? And the answer seems to be little or nothing. And one of the examples we take in the, in the book is the way in which the pharmaceutical industry evolved from being what in some ways is the biggest success story of post-war business, that companies produced a whole raft of life-saving drugs and vaccines that um, made transformed uh, many people's lives, certainly extended them, and they made large profits in the course of doing so. And few people were unhappy about that. But we've seen that that kind of meaningful social responsibility steadily eroded in, in favour of models that, are, well, in the most extreme cases in the last decade, degenerated into extreme price gouging to maximise profits from drugs that had been around for many years. And in the worst case of all, the, the promotion of opioid and similar drugs to people who became addicted to it. In conclusion, then, do you have any optimism that actually greed is dead? I have optimism that we can win this intellectual argument. You know, as Keynes said, it's ideas in the long run which actually govern practical policies. Greed is Dead by John Kay and fellow Oxford University economist Paul Collier is out now. You can find lots more coverage of The Great Reset on the website weform.org and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, YouTube and on Twitter using the handle at WF. Thanks to Gareth Nolan for help producing the podcast. Please subscribe to receive it every week. Just search The Great Reset on Apple, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts where you can also leave us a review and rate us. We'll be back soon, but for now, thanks for listening and goodbye.